Well, with the outbreak of the Civil War, the small social southern town of Washington, D.C., found itself caught between warring sides in a four-year struggle to determine the future of the United States. While the nation's men marched off to war, either on the battlefield or into the halls of Congress, the women of Washington joined the cause as well, serving as nurses, supply organizers, relief workers, and journalists. Today's speaker brings the war-torn capital into focus through the lives of formidable ladies like Verena Howell Davis, Jesse Benton Fremont, Adele Cutts Douglas, and Elizabeth Blair Lee. Compelling social history at its best, Capital Dames concludes that the war not only changed Washington, but also forever changed the role of women in American society. Cokie Roberts is a political commentator for ABC News, providing analysis for all network news programming, as well as for NPR. From 1996 to 2002, she and Sam Donaldson co-anchored the weekly ABC interview program This Week. In her more than 40 years in broadcasting, she has won countless awards, including three Emmys. She's been inducted into the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame and was cited by the American Women in Radio and Television as one of the 50 greatest women in the history of broadcasting. In addition to her appearances on the airwaves, Ms. Roberts, along with her husband Steve Roberts, writes a weekly column syndicated in newspapers across the country by Universal Uclick. Together, they wrote From This Day Forward, an account of their more than 40-year marriage and other marriages in American history. The book immediately went on to the New York Times bestseller list, following Cokie's number one bestseller, We Are Our Mother's Daughters, an account of women's roles and relationships throughout American history. Her later books, Founding Mothers, which she spoke on here at the VHS some years ago, you might remember, and Ladies of Liberty also became instant bestsellers. Her most recent book, which came out just three weeks ago, is Capital Dames, The Civil War and the Women of Washington, 1848 to 1868. Cokie Roberts holds more than 20 honorary degrees, serves on the board of several nonprofit institutions, and on the President's Commission on Civ Cervic and Civic Participation. In 2008, the Library of Congress named her a living legend, one of very few Americans to have attained that honor. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Cokie Roberts. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a treat to be here with you uh, at the fabulous Virginia Historical Society. And it's getting more fabulous every day. Uh, and I must tell you, one of the women in the book did go to the Great Dismal Swamp, um, <laughs> where uh, her husband, well, she's Sarah Rice Pryor, and her husband, Roger Pryor, uh, was stationed there during the war, uh, set up camp there briefly. And <laughs> I'll tell you the really bad thing that happened to her at the Great Dismal Swamp. She got pregnant. Uh, so. <laughs> for child number seven. Uh, so, yes, you know, these men would come home just long enough. And, um, <laughs> but really, it is, it is wonderful to be here and to uh, uh, have the, one, the support of WCVE. Uh, you all know how incredibly important your public broadcasting stations are to, to Richmond and to the community as a whole. And um, so it is, uh, I'm very grateful to them for uh, promoting my being here, but also uh, to all of you for supporting 
both of these great institutions. Uh, I actually uh, am, I should be a, a member of the Virginia Historical Society. I'll sign up, I promise you, Paul. Um, <laughs> the, uh, because that's actually how my family came to America, was uh, from England. They're having a Downton Abbey show here in the fall, and I said, oh, come on, you know, how do you justify that? England, Virginia, that was the answer. But the, um, <laughs> so. but after they, they came to Jamestown and, and then the, the one who was, a, this is the Claiborne family, my mother's maiden name, and the one that was of the uh, generation of the founders uh, was a kid and he was uh, working as an enrolling clerk in Congress. And uh, he said to the clerk of the House of Representatives, this is the first Congress, you know, I want to I run for Congress. And the guy says, there's a guy named Beckley, he says, you're from Virginia, forget it. <laughs> uh, you know, you've got all those other people to contend with. And, uh, and, you know, and right away, Tennessee became a state. He said, move there. They don't have anybody. <laughs> and, uh, and that's exactly what happened. And Andrew Jackson was in the House, and he was then... Um, appointed to the Senate when the senator decided he wanted to hang it up. I mean, they didn't like hanging out in, in it wasn't even Washington. At this point, it was New York and, um, and then Philadelphia. And uh, so this, got my, this ancestor, William Claiborne, gets elected to the sole house seat, the uh, one house seat from Tennessee. He was only 23 and the Constitution says you have to be 25, uh, but there wasn't anybody else. So. <laughs> Uh, so the House seated him in, and the, the declaration was they seated him in contravention of the Constitution. But then the 1800 election comes, and he has a vote in the House of Representatives that is equal to all of Virginia and all of Massachusetts, because it's one state, one vote when an election goes to the House of Representatives. And everybody thought that he could be swayed. I, I, the letters are a riot, basically, because he's young and vain. And, um, but he stuck with Jefferson through 36 ballots. And, and one month later, in a direct political payoff, he was made the governor of the Mississippi Territory. And, um, and then with, with the Louisiana Purchase, Jefferson sends him dashing down the river to New Orleans, and uh, the family has been there and been in politics ever since, um, most recently in the incarnation of my mother, Lindy Claiborne Boggs. Um, so uh, it's, it's nice to come home to Virginia. Um, but, <laughs> but my mother is actually uh, the reason that I have written these books. Uh, my father was elected to Congress, Hale Boggs, in, in 1940, and uh, before I was born. And he, at, tw at age 26, so there's a theme. Uh, but, um, and he and my mother went to Washington with two little kids before World War II. And um, they had a Washington presented to them that was very similar to the Washington that I write about in the 19th century. Uh, you had to go calling on people, and you know it was cabinet wives on one day, and senate wives another, and house wives another, and court another, and then receive on another. The war changed that, but uh, the women had become so close in these relationships that I saw in the Washington that I grew up in uh, after World War II, the incredible influence that these political women uh, exerted. 
they ran all the political conventions. They ran all the voter registration drives. They ran their husbands' campaigns and offices. Of course, they ran as kids. And with the African-American women of Washington, they ran all the social service organizations. And, um, and I knew that the women in our history had to be at least as influential. And I deal with the founders all the time. You know, if you cover Congress and politics as long as I have, and it's a long time, um, you have to deal with the founding fathers because they're always invoked, you know, on the floor of the Senate. The founders said, by the way, the people who invoke them are wrong about 99%. I mean, seriously, <laughs> they really are. And um, so I've had to go back and read what they say about things like religion in the public square or the right to bear arms or why you have to be the child of American citizens to become president. We thought you had to be born in America, but I've checked it out in Canada, apparently will do. Um, but um, <laughs> so the, maybe Kenya too, I, you know, it was, it's not by country, it's by parent. But um, so at any rate, the um, uh, founding fathers and I were sort of on a first name basis. And I wanted to know what the women of the time were up to because they had to be at least as influential as the women of my time. My own mother, by the way, my father was killed in a plane crash and, um, and she then ran for the seat and served for nine terms. And uh, when she was running, she called one of her very best friends uh, who was from these original days in Washington, Lady Bird Johnson, and told her that she'd be running. And, and Mrs. Johnson said, you know, Lindy, I think that's great, but how are you gonna do it without a wife? And, um, <laughs> and it, was, it, was, it was a very good question. Um, actually, I'll just tell you very quickly that my mother did retire and discover, as many do, that retirement's way too hard to work because everybody expects you to do everything. And so at the age of 81, she took a new job in a new country as the United States Ambassador to the Vatican, where she represented Bill Clinton to the Pope. <laughs> now, think of it, it was the toughest job in the diplomatic service, but um, <laughs> if anybody could do it, Mama could. Um, <laughs> and President Clinton says to me, the Pope liked me, Cokie, and I'm sure that's true. So, um, but at any rate, I wanted to know about the women of this crucial period of our history. And so I went back to learn about them and I couldn't. Uh, there was nothing written, and uh, except for a couple of good biographies of Abigail Adams. And now since then, I'm happy to say a lot has been. But at the time that I started doing this, uh, there was really nothing. And so I had to learn about it you know, by doing the research myself. And once I did that, I might as well write about it. Um, so. Uh, I wrote the books on the founding period and, and the founding mothers uh, starting before the revolution going through the inauguration of John Adams, which was the first contested election under the new constitution. And then Ladies of Liberty takes you through the election or the inauguration of John Quincy Adams, which is the literally the next generation. And so I was, I was ready to stop there uh, but the publisher very much wanted a Civil War book. Now, I never wanted to write a Civil War book. All of my ancestors were on the losing side. <laughs> and um, so I didn't see a lot of mileage in that. And, um, 
And also, it's an awful war. You know, 600,000 Americans dead. And I just didn't want to go there. But um, the publisher really did want me to go there. And so I, I started sort of noodling around and saying, well, what would it be? What would be this Civil War book? I mean, obviously, I knew it would be about women. In fact, you know, it's the least I can do. The fact that most history books don't include half of the human race uh, <laughs> makes me feel that they're not exactly accurate. But, um, <laughs> but, the, uh, but, I didn't, but I didn't know what about women. I knew that I would love the letters. I knew I would discover letters that I would um, just find totally delightful because that's what happens. I mean, women's letters are just frankly so much better than men's letters. I mean, it's just not even a question. The men's letters, you know, they knew they were important. And so they wrote with that in mind. They knew they'd be preserved and published. And so it's, it's, it's as if their bronze and marble statues wrote the letters, you know? And, and they're studied and they're edited and they're pompous. The women just wrote letters and, uh, you know, expected nobody to read them except the person they wrote them to. And so they are full of politics, just like the men's letters are, but they're also tell you what the economic situation is, who's having and way too often losing babies, um, who, what the fashions are. It's a much broader picture of American society. And they're franker and they're funnier and they're, in many cases, feistier. So they're a lot more fun to read. And most of them have never been published before, so I'm always making these fabulous discoveries, which, of course, I just thoroughly enjoy because they're such surprises. My per personal favorite remains one uh, from uh, Ladies of Liberty, which was a letter written by Louisa Catherine Adams, John Quincy Adams' wife. Uh, she would write these wonderful gossipy letters home to John Adams after Abigail had died, and he was a little bit lonely and eager for news of the political world. And John Quincy Adams was Secretary of State, and she said in one of her letters that it was her vocation to get him elected president. And um, so this particular letter was written in 1820, the year of the Missouri Compromise, and Congress stayed in session much, much longer than usual in order to hammer out the compromise. And finally they adjourn, and she goes to a meeting of the, um, of the trustees of the orphan asylum that Dolly Madison had uh, established after the British invasion in 1814. And she gets there, Louisa gets there, and one of the other trustees says to her, we're going to need a new building. And she says, why? What are you talking about? And the woman says, the session had been very long. The fathers of the nation had left 40 cases to be provided for by the public, and our institution was the most likely to be called upon to maintain this illicit progeny. 40 pregnant women left behind by the Congress. And there were only about 200 members of Congress at the time. I mean, <laughs> some of them might have been recidivists, I don't know. But, they, but at any rate, she says, she says to John Adams, I 
recommended a petition to Congress next session for that great and moral body to establish a foundling institution and should certainly move that the two additional dollars a day which they have given themselves as an increase in pay may be appropriated as a fund toward the support of the institution. <laughs> now, you know, it just doesn't get any better than that. It, it <laughs> so I knew I would find letters that delighted me, and actually some of them uh, did come from her daughter-in-law, uh, Abigail Brooks Adams, who was married to Charles, Charles Francis Adams, who uh, came to con Congress just for one term, but it was during the infamous Secessionist Congress, the 36th Congress, and then he became the Union's uh, ambassador to the Court of St. James and uh, helped keep the British from recognizing the Confederacy. And during their term in Washington, uh, Abigail Brooks Adams writes home to her son, Henry Adams, all of these wonderfully frank letters, you know, calling President Buchanan a heavy old toad. And um, <laughs> um, she said, the Senate behaved like children and silly ones at that. I can get behind that one. And, um, and then she says, though, this, was, this one just cracked me up. I would advise any young woman who wishes to have an easy, quiet life not to marry an Adams. And so, <laughs> so I, I knew I would find fabulous letters, but I still didn't know what the book was. Uh, so uh, then I started thinking about my own childhood growing up in post-World War II Washington where the effects of the war were physically evident in the city. Uh, the National Mall was covered with what were called temporary buildings, these enormous, horrible-looking Quonset huts um, that had started to go up in World War I and continued to go up through World War II to house the burgeoning bureaucracy to deal with the wars in their aftermath. And I remember actually as a little child saying to my mother, what does temporary mean? Because they didn't seem to be going anywhere. But um, so I had that. Um, I came to know, of course, about Rosie the Riveter and women going into uh, factories and munitions work and aircraft work and all of that in World War II and about the huge influx of government girls into Washington. And uh, as someone who's written a good deal about women in politics and, and women's issues, I knew that it was the war that had spurred on the, the most recent um, uh, movement for equal rights for women, starting in uh, the first Republican convention after the war uh, with the introduction of the Equal Rights Amendment into the, their platform and then the Democrats doing it the next time around. So with all of that in mind, I started wondering, well, maybe did the Civil War have the same kind of impact? Uh, did it have such major changes in women's lives uh, produced by the war and such major uh, events in Washington and uh, alteration of the role of Washington in the, uh, in the life of the country? And as I started doing the research, I discovered absolutely yes, dramatically so, and that's what the book is about. Um, for the Rosie the Riveter, uh, there were all of these women, especially very young women, who went to work in the arsenals. And it was incredibly dangerous work, you know, of actually making the munitions. And in Washington, there was a horrible arsenal explosion where a couple of dozen of these young women were killed 
and the newspaper accounts are just horrific where the, the remains are uncovered and you can't recognize anybody, they're so charred. But the newspaper reporter says, but there they were trapped in their hoop skirts. So here it was, July in Washington, you know, hot as it could be, doing this dangerous work, but there they were, dressed as proper ladies. And um, thousands of people, uh, led by the President and Secretary of War, came to the funeral to honor their uh, contribution to the war effort. And same thing with government girls. They came into Washington by the hundreds during the Civil War. And first they just started showing up because they needed to make a living with the men gone off. But then uh, the Congress passed um, authorization for the printing of paper money to pay for the war. And money still comes off you know, the uh, printing presses in these great, huge, enormous sheets. It's fun to watch. And then, of course, now they're cut up by, into bills by machines. Then you had to sit with a pair of scissors and cut out each bill separately. And uh, the treasurer of the United States, General Skinner, said, women are just better with scissors than men are. And, <laughs> and so he, he also allowed us how he could get them a whole lot cheaper than men, uh, something that various ones of my employers have felt over the years. Um, <laughs> By the end of the war, one of the women journalists, Mary Clemmer Ames, wrote, and she documented, uh, that women were in every department of government, uh, quite the opposite of what had been true at the beginning of the war. And of course, they stayed. They didn't go anywhere. Uh, so another big change. And women journalists also uh, came to town. There had always been some, but uh, came in much larger numbers and established, essentially, a female press corps. Uh, one of them had been there before the war, Jane Swisshelm. She had been the first woman allowed to report out of the Capitol Press Gallery, but she was quickly kicked out of the gallery for writing vicious truths. Uh, she, <laughs> you know, she, 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 didn't, she didn't realize she wasn't supposed to say that Daniel Webster was a drunk. And, um, <laughs> and, and it actually, again, reminded me of my own experience and those, the experiences of my sort of cadre of, of female journalists as we started covering politics and, and riding the bus with the boys on the bus. And, and we had not taken a vow of omerta. You know, we, uh, we did believe that you could write about what was actually happening and that the way that candidate treated women was relevant and all of that. And, um, and I remember once going on the, the Brinkley show, and of course I was the only woman, and I was making this case, and I'm saying, and also, of course, we, you know, even the stuff that we don't uh, broadcast or print, we, we talk about, you know, to our friends who are mostly journalists and the wives of journalists. And the look on these guys' faces was one of just total terror, you know? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the timekeeper for the program told me later that there was 45 seconds of total silence <laughs> as they absorbed this little dangerous fact. Um, but, and then there are women that you, that you do know about, but you probably don't have a firm sense of how incredibly uh, influential and quite remarkable they were. Women like Dorothea Dix, who by the time she died had established more than 100 mental health institutions around the world, including two in Japan, meaning she had traveled by herself as a single woman to Japan in the middle 
19th century. But she came to Washington before the war to lobby for a bill to put aside 12 million acres of federal land for the impoverished and mentally ill. And she was already so influential that the Senate gave her an office in the Capitol from which to do her lobbying. And she got the bill passed one house, one session, another house, another session, finally got it through both houses. And uh, then President Pierce vetoed it and she left town, um, but not, not before having gotten Congress to establish the Government Hospital for the Insane, which is still there at St. Elizabeth's. It's where John Hinckley is now. But um, then the war breaks out, she comes back, she presents herself to the Surgeon General and says that she will be the superintendent of female nurses. There were no female nurses. And um, it was not a field open to women. And uh, the Surgeon General says, yes, ma'am. And, um, and so she, she did set up uh, this huge nursing corps during the war, which, which you know, she had her rules and was, it was something of a martinet, but, uh, but it was a big opening of an occupation for women. At the time, there were about three women doctors in the country. One of them was a surgeon, Mary Walker. She arrived in Washington thinking she would get a job uh, taking care of soldiers, and uh, they wouldn't hire her. They, she had to volunteer. And she dressed like a man, so she was arrested all the time, because sort of, why not? And, um, uh, but, but she then had uh, a some really terrible experiences in the course of the war, and she is still, to this day, the only woman to have won the Medal of Honor was Mary Walker in the Civil War. And then Clara Barton, she was one of these stories, you know, what you always read about her is she founded the American Red Cross, which just makes me furious. This is the way history books work, you know. Then she founded the American Red Cross. Really? Was it hard? Did it take any effort? Uh, was there anything that went before that? You know, it's sort of a, then women got the right to vote. You know, and um, so she had grown up in this uh, family in Massachusetts with an abolitionist suffragist mother and railed against the fact that she made less than men. She finally came to Washington before the war to work in the patent office where she briefly did make as much as men. Then the war breaks out, Massachusetts soldiers come to town and they're um, headquartered in the Senate chamber. And she goes to nurse them, they had been attacked in Baltimore. She goes to nurse them and to provide uh, food and, and newspapers and supplies for them. And they start writing home and saying, there's this little woman here who's really good at organizing supplies and things and if there's anything you know, that you're gonna send, send it through her. So by the time she had three warehouses full of supplies, she went to the quartermaster general and said uh, that she uh, had all of this equipment uh, for the soldiers, and he did what she wanted, which was to send her to the front. And so then she was there for some of the worst battles of the war, uh, starting here in Virginia and going up through into Sharpsburg, not Antietam. Uh, and, um, to Antietam, and she, um, and she was there for that horrendous battle, which remains still the largest, uh, the day of, the single day of the largest number of American casualties. And she worked through the night, day and night, and was uh, much heralded as uh, for her efforts. 
Then when the war was over, one of Lincoln's last acts was to uh, allow her to set up a missing persons bureau, which she did, and she found some soldiers and reunited them with their families, but mainly what she did was, was uh, discover the names of the dead and mark tens of thousands of graves so that the would be people would have the the soldiers would have the dignity and the respect of having their names uh, rather than unknown on their graves and then she went to Europe and she did discover the red cross and she came back and established the american red cross but for it to be truly effective it needed to be aligned with the international red cross which required the Senate to ratify the Geneva Treaty, the Geneva Conventions, which we still talk about today. And it took her two decades of lobbying the Senate. And they finally did uh, ratify the treaty. And then she was the representative to Geneva. And she went there and introduced what is still called the American Amendment, which said that the Red Cross could go into natural disasters as well as battle zones. So right now, today in Nepal, the relief that the International Red Cross is giving to the earthquake victims is a direct result of the lobbying that, that Clara Barton did 130 years ago. So they were a remarkable group of women. Of course, the ones that I liked best, given my day job, uh, were the political women. And, uh, and they were a lot of fun. Uh, before the war, they described themselves as bells in Washington, and they vied for chief beldam. And, um, <laughs> and they, they did. And they, they were all you know, an interesting crowd. My, my personal favorite remains Verena Davis, uh, Jefferson Davis's wife. And she was just, you know, she, was, she and he were had a lot of friction. They seemed to have a lot of love, too, but a lot of friction because he kept trying to put her in a box as the little lady, and she kept trying to get out of it. And, um, and at one point, uh, her friend, Adele Cutts, uh, was about to marry Stephen Douglas, the senator from Illinois. And Adele was loved by everybody. She was uh, Dolly Madison's great niece, and she was beautiful, and she was brilliant, and she was kind. And all of the other women loved her. Uh, but she was poor. And uh, so in 1856, after the campaign for president, she agreed to marry Stephen Douglas. And Verena Davis was furious. And she wrote a letter home to her mother and said, the dirty speculator and party trickster, broken in health by drink, with his first wife's money, buys an elegant, well-bred woman because she is poor and her father is proud. And Verena says it's a good thing there's a new water system coming to Washington so that sparing his wife's olfactories, Douglas may wash a little oftener. <laughs> if he don't, his acquaintance will build larger rooms with more perfect ventilation. <laughs> See, the men's letters don't tell you that Stephen Douglas stinks. <laughs> he still defeated Lincoln two years later. But, um, but she, she um, Verena Davis, became very close friends uh, with Elizabeth Blair Lee. And uh, Lizzie Lee is one of the most interesting women in the book. She is the daughter of Frances Preston Blair, who, of course, was one of 
uh, first Jackson's and then Lincoln's advisors. And um, uh, her brother, Montgomery Blair, was in the cabinet. Her brother, Frank Blair, was a congressman. Her husband, Samuel Phillips Lee, was Robert E. Lee's cousin. But he was a, an officer in the Union Navy. And because he was in the Navy, she wrote to him almost every day. And there are thousands of letters. Uh, the wartime letters are actually in a book, but there are lots of wonderful ones on either side of it as well. And um, you really get a sense from her of how dangerous it was in Washington and, and how the city uh, was in terror for a while until the forts were built around it and then how it did become this enormous hospital. Um, and she was one of the few women in Washington. She and Verena Davis stayed, stayed close throughout the war. Uh, and that was true about a lot of these women. They managed to get messages to each other across the lines, mainly through the servants. And, um, but she was one of the few who tried to befriend Mary Lincoln. Not easy. Um, Mrs. Lincoln, I think today, would be diagnosed as bipolar. Uh, but she, under any circumstances, was certainly mercurial and uh, had a temper and let everybody know what she thought of them. And, um, and she was hounded by the press. Uh, she, she shopped and uh, she was uh, in debt and they followed her around and wrote down everything that she bought. And so she was desperate for good press. And at one point she leaked the President's State of the Union message, or she was accused of leaking the President's State of the Union message to the New York Herald either in exchange for good publicity or for money, depending on whose story you're reading. And um, Congress launched an investigation, investigation into the first lady's communications. Yes, some things don't change. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and she had a private server. It was the servants who went in rather. And um, so, and, uh, the president had to go to the Hill and beg the Congress not to subpoena the First Lady because it would embarrass him so, and since it was a Republican Congress, he was able to prevail, but they did a full investigation. And so she was really, uh, did not have friends. And so the person she most befriended was a woman who was her dressmaker, Elizabeth Keckley, who had been a slave, had bought her freedom, had come to Washington, where she was a very, very talented couturier, written up as an artist. And, and she made Verena Davis's dresses and Lizzie Lee's dresses, Adele Cutts dresses. So when uh, uh, Mary Lincoln came to town, she wanted the best and she hired Mrs. Keckley and they became real confidants. And, um, and they had conversations with the president of the three-way three conversations and also Mrs. Lincoln told Mrs. Keckley what she thought about everything. And, and Mrs. Keckley took care of Mrs. Lincoln when little Willie died. And then after the president was shot, Mary Lincoln was in the White House for two months out of her mind. And um, then Lizzie Keckley took her to Illinois, got her set up, and then, and then she wrote a tell-all book. Um, <laughs> again, you know, just like there's one in the stores right now from White House staff. So, um, so uh, that ruined her dressmaking business because <laughs> because people were afraid she, they might write, she might write about them too, but, uh, but it allowed her to do what she was eager to do, which was spend all of her time on the social service organization that she had established, um, which initially she established when enslaved people started 
escaping to Washington or taking refuge with the Union Army, and they were called contrabands. And so she created a contraband relief association. And because of her prominent patrons, she was able to raise a good deal of money and a lot of awareness. And then after emancipation, it became a freedman's um, society. And a lot of women did come, out, come to Washington to work for social service organizations to uh, help the freedmen. There were huge camps, including one on Arlington. And, um, and that was what I started to see more and more of, is that these women started coming forward. And after the war, coming uh, onto the public stage themselves, and not just trying to be influential through the men, but actually coming forward and speaking with their own voices. And so Verena Davis, for instance, after Jefferson Davis finally died, um, she, um, she decided to move to New York. And everybody was horrified. You know, this was a scandal, the first lady of the Confederacy moving to New York. And the sons of the Confederacy offered to buy her house here in Richmond. And she said, no, I've got a job in New York, and I actually need to make money. I don't have any. And uh, she was, had a job writing for the New York World newspaper, but she also wanted to go there. And she had always been suspect in the South. Her grandfather was the governor of New Jersey, and she had gone to school in Philadelphia. And uh, she was also somewhat olive-complected. She was never quite pale enough for a perfect Southern film. And, <laughs> and so she wrote to her daughter when she was moving to New York, and she said, I'm free, brown, and 64. I can do whatever I want to do. <laughs> but then she, she got to New York, and she did write for the world, and she ran something of a salon, but she also... Uh, befriended Julia Grant, the wife of Ulysses Grant, and it was page one news in papers all over the country that these two women met. And she knew exactly what she was doing. She was uh, effecting a public act of reconciliation. And then she went to the dedication of the Grant Memorial, again, for the purpose of trying to be a force for healing. And that's what I saw with a lot of these women. Uh, Virginia Clay, who had been this delightful, uh, flirtatious, witty belle uh, before the war in Washington, the wife of Alabama Senator uh, Clement Claiborne Clay. Um, she uh, was basically a refugee through the war. And then after she, the war, um, she had to work to get him out of jail. He was arrested as uh, a Lincoln assassin conspirator, which was a total crock. Uh, and she went to Washington to lobby Andrew Johnson. And that is really such a mild way of putting it. I mean, she berated Andrew Johnson uh, until he finally agreed. But that's the other thing I couldn't get over. These women, from the beginning of the book on, are in and out of the White House, whomever is president, and they're just marching in and telling off the president. I mean, I am so jealous. It is, it's, just, it's unbelievable. No, but, so and Andy Johnson finally said, fine, get him out, you know, and you go away. And, uh, and so uh, after he died, she married another former congressman, and then he died, and then, she became this huge suffragist, and she had laughed about the movement before the war. And now she's standing on a platform 
and it's written about in all the newspapers. She's apparently a wonderful speech maker, and she's on platforms with Horace Greeley and Mrs. William Lloyd Garrison, people her husband had fought bitterly before the war. Again, so she's, she's acting in a spirit of reconciliation, but also for a cause. And Sarah Pryor, the woman who was at the Great Dismal Swamp, um, <laughs> had a very difficult time through the war. And Roger Pryor was in prison, and she had no money. She found all kinds of, of creative ways to feed her children. And uh, finally, after the war, he ends up in New York. And she can't go for a while because there's just not enough money. Finally, they scrape together enough. and. She, she and the seven children go to New York, and, um, and eventually she becomes a highly acclaimed writer. But also she um, uh, creates several relief organizations for the Florida yellow fever epidemic, the uh, Galveston flood, all that. But then she worked with Elizabeth Blair Lee, who had stayed faithful to the Union, Sarah Pryor and Lizzie Lee, uh, among others, come together to help create the Daughters of the American Revolution to bring us back to an earlier time when we were all together and fighting the common cause. And so it was very interesting to see how they changed and how they found their voices and used their voices uh, for a variety of things, uh, mainly social welfare, but also suffrage and, as I say, reconciliation. And so looking back on it, a couple of decades later, at a Memorial Day event, and Sarah Pryor had been really the founder of Memorial Day, uh, Clara Barton said, War, women was at least 50 years in advance of the normal position which continued peace would have assigned her. So that was the effect of the war on the women. And uh, it turned out to be fascinating, and they are fabulous. Thank you for letting me share them with you for a little while, and I'd be delighted to take your questions. Their microphones in each aisle, and they would prefer you to come to the microphones because they are recording this. Uh, engaging characters for sure. Did uh, you mentioned uh, General Grant's wife? Did she and perhaps uh, Secretary Stanton's wife and Secretary Stewart's, Stewart's wife were they politically active in any significant way? Um, well, Mrs. Seward stayed most of the time in Auburn, New York. So um, living in the house with Seward, he was called Henry, uh, were um, his son Fred, who was Deputy Secretary of State, and his wife. And she was very active on the scene. And then uh, another son uh, had been a banker in Auburn, and he uh, signed up with the army and came to Washington to, he was stationed in one of those forts uh, around Washington and his wife, Janet, came with him and wrote a nice little diary about her time uh, in that fort in Washington. So she is in there and then their daughter Fanny, excuse me, was in the house the night of the assassination and she has an eyewitness account of the attempt on her father that is just 
blood curdling. Um, and blood is the right word. There's blood everywhere, and she writes about it. And it really, her she and her mother both died very soon after the assassination. Uh, it really seemed to take a, a toll on them. Um, um, Stanton's wife, the only thing I have, so after the war, and Johnson is now president, and, uh, and Stanton is really hates Johnson and is the puppeteer behind impeachment. Um, Lizzie Lee writes that nobody had paid any attention to Mrs. Stanton before the war, and, um, and she's bitter about it. So uh, clearly she was not in the inner circle uh, or one of the bells. And that's one of the things that the Southern women write about when they come back to lobby Johnson, uh, Virginia Clay and Verena Davis, to get their husbands out of jail. They say, of course, we never paid him the, you know, any any notice at all when we were there before. Who is he anyway? And um, and so uh, th those women were um, not part of the swim, but uh, they became. Uh, but various members of the family sort of entered in, and Mrs. Grant became very much part of the swim after the war. She wasn't in Washington before the war, but she loved her time in Washington, and she wrote, she wrote a memoir that nobody published until 1975. And, um, and she said uh, when Johnson was in the White House that even though he had such nice daughters and a lovely wife, uh, that everybody really came to her house. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and she adored her time in the White House and was furious that Grant did not run for a third term. So. Ms. Roberts, in your role as an American historian, um, your writing has been made possible and certainly enriched by the diaries, Absolutely. the letters, oh, the memoirs. Oh, it couldn't be, wouldn't be possible without it. So with the demise of such uh, vehicles, how, how will historians in the future be able to capture these, um, these uh, emotional family right. moments? It's going to be a real problem, and it's you know one of the things that places like the Virginia Historical Society grapple with uh, and try to find ways around. You know, one is to, but I mean, this is going to be this tiny slice, but trying to get grandparents to do memoirs for their grandchildren, things like that. Uh, and there is a lot of that going on. And there's oral histories uh, like StoryCorps that you hear on NPR. Um, and so there are, there are attempts. Uh, for a while there, I actually thought we were in pretty good shape because emails, even though they are not you know, often beautifully crafted, they, are, they do tell a story. And if you print them out, you can learn from them. You know, there was a woman I wrote about in the book that Steve and I did together on marriage, from pioneer marriage, and she, um, she went to Oregon in the early 19th century. I mean, it was really incredible. And she knew it was incredible and kept this diary. And one day she said, you know, I uh, was up at five, baked nine more loaves of bread, taught the children, was delivered of a son. And... <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah. Now, that's a tweet. And, <laughs> but you get the picture. <laughs> so um, as much as anybody can write down, please write it down. I assume with subpoenas you can pull Instagram out of the cloud. But, um, but seriously, it is an issue. And, and people are trying to address it. But the best way to address it is inside your own families. So, yes. Hi. Was there any communication between the pioneering nurses that you mentioned and Florence Nightingale, who, of course, was 
establishing uh, nursing in England at the time of the uh, Crimean War. They were very well aware of Florence Nightingale and the whole creation of the Sanitary Commission, uh, which was you know, to get supplies and nurses to the troops, uh, was based on what she had done, very self-consciously based on. So what had happened was Elizabeth Blackwell, who was one of the first, she was the first female doctor in America, um, worked to organize the first big sanitary fair in New York. And then they created, they, um, they had uh, six men and six women put on the committee and they came down to talk to Lincoln about what they could do about it. The men came to talk to Lincoln about what they could do about it. And on the train on the way down, they realized that what they needed to do was create a sanitary commission and they said very explicitly, like the one Florence Nightingale put together. And um, when Clara Barton went to Europe after the war, it was to look at all of that and see what Nightingale had wrought. So that she was she was known, and her work was known. Is Rose O'Neill Greenhow mentioned? Oh, in sure, book? she is. <laughs> you can't write about women in Washington in this period without Rose O'Neill Greenhow. Uh, she was, of course, a great socialite, a very prominent hostess, considered a brilliant conversationalist, knew everybody, entertained both sides, um, both parties, both regions, sometimes individually late at night with the shades drawn. And, um, <laughs> uh, but she, uh, the Confederates came to her and explicitly knowing that she was a huge sympathizer. She was, by the way, Adele Cutt's aunt uh, on the other side from Dolly. And um, she, um, she was uh, uh, solicited to start a spy ring, which she did. And uh, she got the battle plans for Bull Run Manassas. Um, and, um, and one of her, so before the forts were all built, of course, Washington was in terrible danger. And so uh, the bridges were heavily, heavily guarded. So getting anything out across the bridges was very hard. But one of her, one of her spies uh, was this gorgeous girl, and she went walking across the bridge, uh, dressed you know, as a farm girl, and then she got to this side and went to a friendly house and immediately changed into riding gear and took off. And I think the uh, Confederates were at Fairfax Station. And she got there, and I love these stories, and she let down her long hair. <laughs> and, and there under it were the battle plans for Manassas. And so, um, true, I mean, it's a true story. And, um, and you all know the story. I mean, the Yankees totally expected to win, and the members of Congress went out with their picnics and all that stuff, and then it was a southern route. And uh, everybody was mystified, and it was because of Rose. And she then kept it up, and then finally uh, Alan Pinkerton put her under house arrest. And um, even then she was able to get a lot of information in and out, and, um, and all the newspapers wrote about it. Um, and that was, that was one of the great things in this book, which was different from the past, which is all the newspapers are online uh, from the late 18th century on. I mean, you can waste days reading these newspapers. <laughs> They're so much fun, you know, all the ads are there, everything. And, um, and so uh, they wrote about her and, and uh, 
she wrote this letter to Seward about the horrible conditions. So the reaction to that was to put her in real jail. And, um, and she and her little girl, little Rose, were in prison for several months. Finally, um, she is sent to Richmond. And, and all the way down, she's getting news that the city's fallen to the north. All of that was way before that was true. She gets here, Jefferson Davis uh, greets her effusively, tells her that you know they would not be anywhere near in this position without her. And after she recuperates, somebody sends her to Great Britain uh, to propagandize. And she writes her memoir there, which creates a lot of sympathy, and she collects a good deal of gold because the South was in great need of, of cold cash. And she comes back across and uh, they run the blockade and her lifeboat founders breaks apart and the gold was all sewn into her dress. So she drowned. Um, um, and that was the end of sweet Rosie O'Neill. But, um, <laughs> but uh, she was quite a character. You were um, talking about when Clara Barton was identifying all of these Civil War dead. Right. Without dental records and DNA and all that stuff. How'd she do that? Well, it was mainly it was mainly at Andersonville, uh, although there were other places. And there was a, a prisoner there whose job had been to write down who everybody was and where they were buried. And then when he realized that the South was about to fall, he snuck out. The, he, he copied the records himself late at night. And when he realized they were about to fall, he, he hid them and snuck them out and brought them to her. Um, then he was put in jail for stealing the records. Um, you know, nothing's ever, no, no good deed goes unpunished. But, um, but she went down there in the heat of uh, summer and, and worked you know, going grave by grave by grave and marking them. So those were the main ones. There were 13,000 at Andersonville alone. But, uh, but then there were others around battlefields where they were able to, somebody would say, oh, I know who that was. She did a lot of putting things in newspapers all over the country. So people would come forward from those newspapers and, uh, and, and tell her what was going on. So she had kind of a network through the newspapers. Do you have any plans to broaden the scope of this subject and include more of the people from Richmond or from New York? No. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, I never wanted to write a Civil War book. <laughs> um, and the reason I, I concentrated on Washington was, first of all, otherwise it's just way too big a book. I mean, there, Richmond is in the book, obviously, because of, it was the capital of the Confederacy, and after it, after the you know the, it fell, um, Lincoln comes through and all of that. But um, and then there are Verena Davis's and Virginia Clay's and Sarah Pryor's reports of what was going on in Richmond. And uh, there's, there's one really incredible letter from a woman whose last name I've never discovered. It was Agnes, and she wrote to Sarah Pryor. And she was a Confederate. Uh, she, her husband probably was in the U.S. Congress. And she was here through the bread riots. And, um, and she wrote to Sarah, who was in... Um, uh, Petersburg at the time, and said um, she had seen these incredibly thin women and how starving they were. And she said, you know, when you and I were going to those debates in the House and the Senate about the expansion of slavery into the territories, we had no idea 
that this is what would happen. And these are the people who would suffer. And someone's to blame for it, and it's not you, and it's not me. Um, so, you know, you get a lot of pictures of Richmond. But, um, but uh, Washington is, as I say, first of all, it would have been way too good, diffuse a book if I had not kept it to one place. But also, I know Washington really well. And what I've learned in reading a lot of history is that academic historians often get the history right and the politics wrong. And I'm good at the politics. And, um, and so uh, that I, I bring that dimension uh, to the writing about Washington. So it's silly for me to move outside of Washington. If, if you're still writing books 100 years from now, and we hope you are. Which I, yeah, certainly. We hope you are. What women in our current generation would you like to write about? Well, there are lots. I mean, there are lots of uh, very interesting uh, women doing all kinds of things, both behind the scenes and, and on the scenes. I mean, the, the great uh, joy now is that women actually hold the power. Um, Still, the, the most powerful woman in the country, as long as we have a married man president, remains the first lady. But, um, but, but there are lots of other women in powerful positions, both in and out of government. So, and many of them have wonderful stories to tell, and, um, and I'm sure many more will. So I, that's easy. You know, that, there'll be a lot of material for somebody 100 years from now. During this period that the Danes wrote about, did they write much about the war profiteering and the corruption, or did they consider it that? that? They didn't write about it. Um, I mean, you can certainly read about it in lots of histories, but um, that was they, they did talk, you know, they, they talked about uh, people that they thought were um, not honest. But they didn't. They didn't talk about profiteering and corruption in, in explicit terms. But look, the whole thing is, you know, there are lots and lots of books about battles and about um, the what the men were up to. Um, there are no books uh, about what the women were doing. In I mean, there's some books called Women in the Civil War, and there's some good biographies. Most of the women in the Civil War books were written in the, right after the war. And there's sort of hagiographies, but the um, but the uh, bringing the women together and seeing what their influence was th that book hadn't been written, and uh, and I think that you know you can find the what the shenanigans of the men were a lot of other places. So thank you all so very very much. It's been